the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And it begins, or it reads as follows. Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed um, through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of His holy word. Let us ask God's blessings on our time together. Gracious God, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thanking you for the gift of life and all that comes with it. And we especially thank you for the newness of life that we have in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for this sacred assembly. We thank you for the opportunity of gathering with like-minded believers that we would be able to lift our feeble voices to you in Zion's songs. We do ask now that as we enter into this period where your word will be opened in our midst, that you would give us ears to hear what we ought to hear, that we would hear Christ, our Savior, presented clearly and properly. And we pray that you would give us a heart to embrace him as he is presented. We do thank you for the sweetness of your gospel, and we pray that as we take heed to these things, that we would be strengthened in our walk with you. We ask all of this in the sweet, saving, and satisfying name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul uses a phrase that I think is very helpful, and it's one that uh, perhaps gets a little taken for granted when it comes to understanding uh, the depths and the riches of the gospel. In fact, he uses it in most of his, uh, in his, in his general epistles, he uses the term, the riches of God's grace. The riches of God's grace. And he, he often talks about it. He prays in Ephesians 1 that the people of God's mind would be expanded to know the riches of God's grace and the power of God towards us uh, who believe. He speaks of it in Colossians. He speaks of it in a number of places. And in some sense, Paul presents the riches of God's grace as that which is contained in the gospel message. And to that degree, we know that the gospel message, as Paul himself has summarized it in 1 Corinthians 15, is the knowledge of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In a broader sense, the gospel message is God's announcement or the announcement of God's saving purposes for, and, and, and power through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so in a sense, you could say that is the riches, those are the riches of God's grace, what is contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, but here's what Paul does. Paul assumes that these riches can be laid out, in a sense, in a matter of seconds. I just told you, here's what the good news of the gospel is, that God, the eternal, sovereign God from all eternity, has determined to save those who come to faith by Jesus Christ through the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he has lived 
for the obedience that God has required. And he has died to pay the penalty for our sins that he was raised on the third day by the power of God. That, those are the riches of the gospel. That's it. I mean, that's, that's it. But here's what Paul seems to assume. That these riches that can be laid out on the table in a matter of moments really take a lifetime to digest and to fully embrace. There are many points uh, in, in, the, in the, the treasure house of God's graces. It, there are many points, many things, many riches, many gems and jewels that we enjoy on the regular and we tend to take for granted. It's one of them is prayer. In fact, we have taken prayer so much for granted that even non-believers or nominal believers act as if it is a human right to pray. They act as if, if everyone can pray and pray effectively. In fact, um, any tragedy that, that occurs, the, the, here's what we get, even from newscasters, some may, may even be enemies of God, but one of the first things they will say is, we pray for the victims. And that's a good concept in and of itself. It's a, it's, a, it's a rich concept, but here's what it overlooks. It overlooks the fact that God says in His Word that the prayers of the unrighteous are an abomination to Him. And so here we are. We have this great privilege of prayer, this, this, rich, this, this, this rich gem that are located in the riches of God's grace, we have this concept of prayer. Now, I'm not talking about as the diseased prayer that James speaks of in, in James, and that's a different category altogether. But here's what I, as, as I look at the passage that we have, what I'm reminded of is this wonderful privilege that Paul gives us, really, as the applicatory portion of this passage. In fact, he gives us an exhortation. He not only says that we are to pray, but Paul says, let us come boldly. Boldly to the throne of grace. Now, that's, that, that might, that's one of those riches that we know we sing about, we talk about it. But I wonder if we understand the fullness of what that statement actually means. So it's really given to us almost as a paradox because... Verse 13 also gives us this other statement. It tells us of the penetrating, all-encompassing gaze of God. Okay, and, 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 and the writer of Hebrews has a way here of just sort of giving us a book full of teasers and really the substance of what he's going to be addressing. It's, it's, it's filled out elsewhere, but he kind of throws these teasers out there. And here's what he tells us about God, that there is nothing that God doesn't see. And then at the end of chapter 12, he, 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 he couples another thing to this, this all-penetrating gaze of God. He says that our God is a consuming fire. Okay? So here's this paradox. Paradox is this. Now, what do we know about ourselves? And I'm not speaking of unbelievers. What do we know about Believers. Well, Paul tells us in Romans 7 that the good that we would do, we don't do. The evil that we don't want to do is the very thing we find ourselves doing. He says there seems to be another law at work, a, a battle within my flesh. I want to do right, but then I don't. And I, and I don't want to do wrong, but I do. 
That's what we are. What, what does Paul say about us as we have come into the faith? He says of himself, he says, I am the chief of sinners, and I believed that until I came to know me. Maybe Paul was the chief of sinners until I came along, and maybe that's the way you see it. But, but here's what we are. Here, here, here's, what, what Paul is, here's what the writer of Hebrews is depicting, that we have this great and we have this grand privilege of going into the presence of a God who sees all, who knows all, whose word itself is, like, is sharper than a two-edged sword. We can't hide anything from God. And yet, here we are, sinners. In and of ourselves, we don't love God as we ought. We don't love our neighbors as we ought. And yet, the writer of Hebrews says that you and I, he, he admonishes us, he encourages us, he exhorts us to go to the throne of grace. That's a rich and powerful statement. Number one, when it speaks of throne, it speaks of the authority of God and the authority that we are speaking of, the sovereign dominion, the power that we are speaking of is one who is so holy that he can't look upon evil. The writer admonishes us to go in his presence. And, and then he speaks of his presence not as a throne of justice, but he speaks of his throne as a throne of grace. And then he doesn't just tell us to go and, 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 and make your petition known, but notice what he says. He says, go boldly. Now who is he talking to? He's talking to you and I. He's talking to individuals whose sins are egregious. He's speaking to those whose tongues are vile, whose hearts are, are, are conjuring up sins that our bodies haven't gotten to. He's speaking to those whose feet are quick to leave and depart the path of peace and to go into the path of destruction. He's speaking of those who are reeking with sin. That's who he's speaking to. And he doesn't say, go and see if he will accept you. He admonishes us to go boldly to the throne of grace. And brothers and sisters, here's what he suggests. He doesn't say, go and see if the king would tells us that we have bold access to the throne of grace and we have the full confidence that we can find help. We can find mercy in our time of need. Don't fill out an application. He's not telling you to go boldly, make sure you get rid of all known sins. No, he says go Boldly. Now, when you think about it, when do you need or when do you need help from the throne of grace? Not usually at the pinnacle, not when we are on top of the world, but when we've been battered, when we have been when we have been overthrown and overtaken by sin and guilt, when we are engaged in in, in situations that seem that that they will take the best of us, when our strength is sapped. 
here's what the writer is telling us. Go. You say, well, I don't want to go to him. Does he have someone else that I can go to? Someone else's, someone else whose gaze is not as penetrating. Is there someone else who's, who's less stringent? Is there someone else that I could go and approach who is not an all-consuming fire? The writer says, don't be afraid. Go boldly. That's the paradox. Paradox is that we wretched sinners have been exhorted and admonished by the very word of God to go boldly into his presence and seek from him that which is able to strengthen and to help us. What makes such a thing possible? Is God the kind of God who who just kind of sweeps our deeds under the carpet and says, okay, now I've cleaned you up, now just promise to do better the next time? No. Ryder gives us this wonderful statement in verse 14 as he transitions out of verse 13 telling us about the great great God, the all-penetrating gaze of God with whom we have to deal with. He then tells us that we have a great high priest. Now he's introduced this concept of priesthood in chapter 2. Towards the end of the chapter he tells us there that that, that, that Jesus did not take on flesh so that he could help angels. He didn't become like angels. But we have a high priest who was made like us. So that he was tempted in all points, even as we are. He says that, that he is everything that we are supposed to be, Jesus was. And he gives us this introduction of this language of a high priest. And then at the opening of chapter 3, he tells us again of this great high priest or of this high priest. But now he uses the superlative language and he tells us this, seeing then that we have And really, in in, in the Hebrew, it would have been sort of the, the, the high priest was the idea of the great priest. And so, in essence, what he's saying is we have a great, great priest. We have a, a, a high priest. We have one who ministers over the household of God and who he tells us in chapter 10, he told us in chapter 2 that he is the representative, but again, he gives us these teasers. He gives us these simple statements that can be opened up and enlarged in other places. And so he tells us in chapter 10 that when Jesus came into the world and he quotes from Psalms 40, Here are the words of Christ to the Father before he enters into the world. A body, he says, sacrifice and offering you did not require, but a body you have prepared me. For what purpose? To do your will, O God. And so he says, therefore, sacrifices and offerings I have not offered or sacrificed, but a body. In other words, here's what our great high priest, here's what makes him not just a high priest that's appointed because it's his time on the calendar to to head up the the rest of the priest. What the writer will be opening up from this portion on, from the fifth chapter, really all the way through the tenth chapter, is the excellency of our high priest. And here's what makes him a great high priest. 
I know what preachers, what people usually say about preachers. Well, you don't know. You're, you, you, you're in your ivory tower. You, you don't know. We, we, we deal with the nuts and bolts of life. And, and boy, what, how foolish that is. And, and sometimes, you know, you, you go into a certain setting and people find out you're a preacher, so they put away their beer. Okay? They watch their language. Oh, let me, and, uh, you know, of course, well, I won't answer that. But, but, but you know, they'll they, they watch their language. Oh, I, oh, excuse me, preacher, I didn't, Reverend, I didn't, I didn't see you sitting there. And as, as if we haven't seen the hard things of life, as if we, as if we haven't wrestled with these issues. And here's what, what, what the writer is telling us about our high priest. He is not separated from you. And your experience. I know, here's, here, here, here we are in our arrogance. We think no one knows our pain but us. No one has been there. No one has weighed and experienced what you have experienced. No one has endured these things. As if every trial is new, but here's what the writer tells us. We have a great high priest who is very much like us. He represents us, but He represents us. He knows what it means to be an adolescent. He knows what it means to be a 12-year-old. He knows what it means to be a young adult. He knows what it means to be human in a fallen and cursed world. He knows what it means to be alienated. He knows what it means to be tempted. Because the Scripture says He was tempted in all points, even as we are. Say, oh no, he doesn't know our pain. Really? Have you read the scriptures? Oh, brothers and sisters, here's what the writer tells us. We have this great privilege of going boldly to the throne of grace where we can encounter and make petitions to the sovereign, penetrating gaze of Almighty God. And we can go not with heads heads bowed, but with heads up. We can go boldly. Why? Because we have a great high priest. So, well, who's this high priest? And the writer tells us that he is Jesus, the Son of God. And notice what the writer does. He doesn't just say that he is Jesus, the Son of God. He says he is. We have a great high priest who has passed. Through the heavens. And so the reason that's important, brothers and sisters, is because here is the high priest who ministers on our behalf. Here is the high priest who has gained for us the privilege of going into the very presence of God and making our petitions known. He's passed through the heavens. But do you know how he's passed through the heavens? Yes, he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sins. He's passed through the heavens in a body that has been crucified. You see, he who knew no sin took on the penalty for our sins. You see, the the God with whom we have to deal, he is a consuming fire. That that even the, the heavens are not pure to him. See, he is, he is an all-consuming fire. There is none as pure as he is. Because what he has required of us is to be pure as he is. And yet we aren't. 
but we can go boldly to the throne of grace because Jesus has entered into the heavens in our bodies and bodies that have indeed paid the penalty for our sins. That's why Paul says he was raised for our justification. And how was he raised? In a body that is, will forever, for eternity, he will bear our scars so that we can enjoy these privileges. Now notice what, what he says. He says that it's Jesus who has gone into the heavenlies and he, is, he has been tempted in all points as we have. In verse, in, in verse uh, 14, it says that uh, it, he has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And then notice the next statement. He says, let us therefore hold fast our confession. Now, what is a confession? The term simply means, I agree or I believe. And here's the confession of the Christian faith. Confession is not just saying, oh, I admitting. We know that it's, an, it's admitting, but in a broader sense, what confession means is I agree. And here is our access to the Father. That I confess that Jesus is the Son of God. That He is the eternal Son of God. I agree that Jesus entered into time and space. I agree that he was born of a virgin. I agree that he lived on planet earth. I agree that he was tempted in all points, even as we are. And I agree that Jesus lived for all the righteousness that God has required of me. And I agree that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. I agree that he was raised from the third day by the power of God and that 40 days later he ascended into the heavens. And here is the capstone of all of that. And I agree that right now he is seated at the right hand of the Father ever making intercession for me. Let's hold fast that confession Because, brothers and sisters, it's the knowledge of that confession that gives us the boldness, the the right to go boldly into the presence of God. When we seek our help in time of trouble, we we don't go before the Lord and say, Lord, please answer my prayer because, you know, I, I know I've been wrestling with this issue, but I'm doing better. That's not the basis of our boldness. Basis of our boldness is not a checklist of all of the stuff that we stop doing. Basis of our boldness is not that we fasted before we prayed. The basis of our boldness is that Jesus has entered into the holies and that He is there in an eternally scarred body so that you and I could go to the throne of the Father and seek help. Brothers and sisters, that's a wonderful privilege that we don't often think of. 
We pray, I know we pray, and I, I know we talk about effectual prayers and, and fervent prayers and all of the rest of it. We pray in the Spirit, we pray in all these different ways. But what makes our prayers answerable to God? And what gives us boldness to be able to go before His presence as our great high priest? My father was, uh, when I was growing up, my father worked for the city of Los Angeles and sanitation. He drove a trash truck. He was a loader. He started as a loader. And this was before the days of the automated truck where the guy just drives a truck and hits a button. And I'd see my father get up early in the morning to go to work. And I'd see him come home in the afternoon with his hard hat on. I'd see him dirty and smelly from working on the trash truck. Uh, He took care of us, took care of his family from dumping trash. I remember one day after I got my first job out of college, I'm working in the Wilshire district, sort of the financial district, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and as I'm headed real quick, because I was running late and I'm headed to my, my meeting, I see a trash truck down the street, and, and I hear someone call my name, and there was my dad on that truck. And I'm, get, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, you know, all these years, I knew what he did. I knew how he left home, and I knew how he came home. And, and later, his, his friend, because I was rushing, and, and his friend told him that, that he was on the truck, which, oh, you know, look at him, he's all in his suit. He says, he's, he's, just, he's ashamed of you. And, and so later, when my dad told me that, he says, yeah, so-and-so said, you know, you, he was ashamed that you were ashamed. I said, Daddy, I'm never, never ashamed. Because here, for the first time, I saw the dirt. I saw the sweat that actually provided my meals and that took care of me. Brothers and sisters, here's what I'm saying. What what, what the writer of Hebrew wants us to know is that yes, you can go boldly to the throne of grace, but he wants you to see the scars of the exalted second person of the Godhead that enables you to go boldly to the throne of grace with the full confidence that you will receive mercy. You will receive grace because your heavenly Father has sent forth His Son to purchase the righteousness that you could not perform. Let us hear the words of our Savior Let us hear the words of Holy Scripture because we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But he was, in all points, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Let us know that he who is the cosmic king of the universe will gladly receive you. And he will freely give you grace and mercy in your time of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you
for the riches of Your grace. We do ask, oh God, if there is ever one moment or even one prayer that we would dare utter that does not take into account the scars and the wounds that make it possible. We pray that you would give us a heart to repent. That we would know what a great privilege it is to call upon you as our Father and know that you would hear and answer our prayers. We thank you for our High Priest. We thank you for the excellency of his sacrifice. We thank you for the excellency of his person. And we thank you for the fact that he's not in the outer courts, but he's entered behind the veil. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.